Hello everyone, welcome to episode 14 of Tennis with an Accent. Cannot believe the first slam is already in the books. I'm Saqib here, joined by Anand. Hey everyone. Uh, plenty to talk about. Roger Federer is back in the winner's circle and so is Serena Williams. What a fairy tale start. So uh, still recovering from what we saw this uh, last weekend. Uh, of course, uh, can't be happier Federer's champion again. But in general context of the tennis, do you think this match uh, backed up the hype it generated and it's one of the greatest open era matches or the greatest match? Let me back uh, up a bit and say this. Um, you know, Roger Rafa uh, playing in a Grand Slam final, it's such a treat. Um, I think we were missing this for many years. Um, we saw Djokovic and Murray play many finals in between and this match made me remember really how much fun it is to watch these two guys play against each other. The contrast in styles, the drama, the mental battles. Um, so really, I mean, if you ask the question, is this the greatest match? I think it really depends on if you're a Federer fan or a Rafa fan. Uh, the way I'm thinking about it is, for, as a Federer fan, this had an element to it that, uh, I mean, that I think capped off a storyline uh, where Federer was constantly the one who was behind Rafa in this rivalry. And he turned it around. He flipped the script on Rafa. So from a story standpoint, if you're a Federer fan, I think this was this was their greatest match. Uh, but for quality of tennis, I, I have to say that we've seen better from both. Um, but who can argue against those last six or seven games and the quality that, that was showed by these two guys at their age? Yeah, true. I mean, uh, if you look at their personal battle, Wimbledon 2008, Rome 2006, uh, the final here seven years ago. So there are plenty of matches where the quality was insane. But given what was at stake, it was like a movie script. Nadal coming back from nowhere, Federer after a six-month layoff, uh, and then battling out with epic numbers, 17 and 14, 18 and 15 at stake. So yeah, if you add up all those things, definitely the match delivered. And especially for Fed fans like us, it was just, uh, you know, so many memories came came back when Nadal won the fourth set and early fifth set down a break. So yeah, if you're a Federer fan, this is like the highlight reel. This is like your answer you've been seeking for so long. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so what do you think were the two or three top reasons why the result was different this time? I mean, what was it about? Uh, was it the faster courts? Was it that Roger was more prepared than Rafa? Rafa is not the same player? What, 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 how would you break this down? I think it's a two-edged sword. Like personally, you and me remember discussing a lot of these losses uh, at Nadal's hands when uh, we were talking Roger Federer. And now it's very easy to do a postmortem because you know we know he won the match, and everything you're saying makes sense. The court uh, being quicker, uh, ball skidding a little more, and then uh, obviously the X factor is the new frame because Federer has uh, really mastered this frame since he last lost to Nadal three years ago in the semifinals here. That's, I think, his first tournament after the off-season when he used a racket uh, after the experiment in 2013. And since then, Nadal was on some sort of trajectory that they just can, uh, could not keep the date. Like, they had a couple of chances playing in 2015. So, I think the racket factor is kind of, uh, to me, the big X factor here because Federer really challenged peak Djokovic. He was the only guy who was coming close. And uh, we always wondered what how this Federer would measure against uh, a declining or even, you know, a resurgent Nadal. And we got our answer. I think there's a lot on the racket because those backhand drives and, uh, you know, like how Federer was driving the ball and just coming over it and not second-guessing at all. I think a lot has to do with the racket and, of course, the mindset. 
Yeah, the mindset is huge because even as a fan, Sakil, let's admit it, um, we, this is a matchup we some of us were dreading, right? Even, I was one of them. I didn't want to see this match because I knew the implications, but now I'm so happy. I, I remember you started congratulating all our Rafa fans in our forum. Uh, you know, the moment you knew that he was the guy making the final, and and uh, some of us held some hope, but. But truly, it's the mindset thing. And if as fans, we had to fight this, can you imagine the battle that Roger had to go through when he lost that uh, break, uh, break or serve in the fifth set? Uh, I think now it's, uh, you know, it's a very different perspective because he was in the ESPN booth after his win yesterday and he told Cahill and Gilbert that uh, before the match, uh, Severin Luthi and Ivan Lubicic had the same message, say it's all mental. And uh, this is where really they told him to play the ball not the opponent, and I'm sure he had to exercise so many demons out there. He, of all, if, if fans were suffering, I cannot imagine what was going through his mind, but he showed like this sheer positive approach. And uh, maybe he's telling himself, you know what, one more, same thing what Djokovic said years ago when he closed his eyes and ripped those forehands in 2010 semis. He said, well, another loss to Federer, so I just decided to go for it. And maybe Roger said, you know, one more loss to Rafa, why don't I just leave everything out here, you know, like no second guessing. Absolutely. And one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about was uh, the fact that he took an injury timeout uh, before the fifth set. Um, I Clearly, I think that recharged him. It, it was a different Federer that showed up in the fifth set than, you know, the one that played out the fourth. And you could argue the same for Rafa. It halted his momentum. Um, there, there has been some talk, uh, like people like Pat Cash saying it is legal cheating. Uh, what, where do you think this thing falls? I mean, Federer is not the guy. He's a man of, I, I think, of uh, top integrity. And his motive should not be questioned. But this definitely was a questionable uh, call by him uh, to go and take that time out. I think uh, if you need the answer, Federer already answered that question. And he said he's led the way in 20 years of his tennis. He seldom gets MTOs and, you know, he tries to play it out. And if he's doing it, you know, he pretty much has earned the reputation that, you know, there's generally something wrong and others do it too. Nadal did it yes, in the final after the first set. I think he took a break and Wawrinka took a break after set two. So, okay, let me be just clear, being as much of a Fed fan I am, I personally told some of my friends after the semifinal that it was more of a tactical move. Uh, I didn't think Federer needed it that day against Stan. And uh, it was just also Stan had done it before. So I think it was just like to set his... Uh, head free and start the fifth. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, personally, do I want to see Fed doing this? No. But then others have done it against him. And uh, then at the same point, the other part of me wants to believe that he was genuinely injured and he, you know, needed uh, that, you know, massage and something, you know, whatever he called magic hands. And he, he played, you know, two really good uh, fifth sets. But at the same time, uh, this is like, you know, tennis has these rules which have has, have been bent by many before. And it's within the rules, and I don't think Nadal complained about it, but definitely it halted momentum. And I think it was a stroke of genius because it has been done to him before. I mean, Nadal has taken some breaks, like even an Indian well when Federer was serving for the match. So it's been done before. I would actually agree with you on this um, because I think Roger is really, I, I think he's beyond fault uh, when it comes to this particular uh, offense. And um, he he's been one of these people, uh, I think, who has held in held the game in much integrity. His peers have voted him uh, the Sportsman of the Year for several years in a row, and that speaks for itself. Um, but having said that, I, I think there's no doubt that he benefited from these injury timeouts. 
whether it was uh, intentional or not, um, he he was a better player when he came back from these timeouts. And I think he admitted to as much. He said it helped to have someone to talk through my injury with someone. And uh, sometimes it's just getting those mental uh, demons out of your way. I mean, if you really want to break it down, and even the Vavrinka match, Vavrinka had break points to begin the fifth set. And then Federer was the first one after saving those break points. He broke him back. He broke him, not broke him back. And similarly against Rafael Nadal, I mean, Nadal got the break, was up 2-love, was up 3-1. So even though you think this uh, probably halted their momentum, I think it just uh, reassured Federer. He came back with a plan. I don't think both men, especially Nadal, uh, wasn't really uh, halted or, you know, his momentum was stolen or something. That is that is a fair point. I mean, if it, it is true that Nadal broke Roger right at the beginning of the set. I just think that Federer came back recharged, um, even though, you know, Nadal held that 3-1 lead. At no point in the set did Nadal look like he wasn't going to get broken. Uh, Federer held break points in every game. Something snapped in him in terms of his return game, Federer's return game, and, and he got his serve into a groove uh, after that initial break. Um, and so there was there was definitely... In my mind, there was definitely some rethinking happening with Roger before that fifth set. Now, obviously, the question is whether it happened while he was getting a massage from the trainer or it was just a thought process he had to go through. Uh, but overall, I, I cannot complain against the result. So, Akib, I think this was the one of the highlights of... Uh, absolute highlights of our tennis watching uh, career I guess yeah I mean I'll, I'll say that even though I hope there are a lot of Nadal fans who listen to our podcast and you know I know there are some Djokovic fans as well and uh, we don't want to sound too biased but you know our roots are still as a fan and uh, yeah this was something that you know Roger Federer just delivered for the ages I mean this match is going to stay if I don't watch another match I mean this this, this is going to stay for a while this was special so let's take this forward and ask, I mean, the the big implication of this win is Roger has 18 slams. Well, I'll also bring up Serena Williams on the other side, who is unstoppable on the women's tour. Uh, and she has 23 slams. Let me ask the same question for both of them. Does Do these wins mean that these two are now the greatest players of all time? I mean, this is such a moving uh, conversation and, you know, like even... When we interviewed Korda last week, he called Mr. Lever. And uh, there's a lot of opinions out, out out there on this. And definitely Federer, I think a lot of people are calling him the most successful player. But this is a win against his nemesis in uh, pretty much the twilight of his career. We don't even know if he's going to be making this trip back, he said. Uh, again, we don't want to read too much into it. <laughs> that was <it's>, scary. <laughs> yeah. I think he plans to play. I think that was he's being just uh, you know candid in those interviews because... He suffered his first injury, but uh, to answer your question, uh, is uh, what is this goatness or greatest of all time? Sh- sheerly dependent on uh, you know these stats because I think Federer also transcends the beauty that a lot of people don't realize. You know, he's played over different generations. He started with a very smaller racket frame, then played with the smallest frame f- for his era for the longest time. So I think there's something about that which, to me, if uh, you have to pick someone who's greatest or the style, I think Federer is a little more above the stats, I think. I I, I mean, being a Federer fan, I think we're all uh, singing from the same notes here. But the thing that really stands out for me is if I had to take the perfect tennis player, let's say 100 years from now, somebody was explaining the sport and there's a paradigm that they have to come up with for the perfect tennis player. 
you couldn't look beyond Roger Federer. Um, plays tennis like a ballet artist. And um, and he's got every shot in the book. And I just think his competitive spirit, this is something which has always been underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his competitive spirit came through in this match. Um, and I think once for all, I think it shut up all the people who say he's not mentally strong. Um, because, I mean, if you even think back to Federer's five-set record, yeah. the number of times he comes back from two uh, two sets down and wins matches, I mean, he's he's right up there on top of that list. And so for me, if there was that one gap in his resume, it was that, oh, he doesn't show up for the big matches when he's really under pressure. And, and this one, I think, against his biggest rival pretty much snuffed that out. Uh, for me, he's the greatest player of all time. Look, I think this is, again, uh, I agree with you if uh, this is your sentiment. But a uh, couple, a few months ago, Novak Djokovic was playing the tennis of his life. And at that point, uh, Roger Federer's dominance and even Rafa Nadal's, uh, you know, mastery of, of clay. It, it seemed like a memory of the past because we tend to live in the recency effect. And at that time, we've had this conversation uh it's you know like like football any given Sunday at that time it seemed Novak is playing at a level that was unprecedented, but uh, I'll just say and agree with you that what Roger did you know at this age making a comeback against his nemesis you know Nadal even at his uh, below his best is always a tough ask for Roger and he had a ideal preparation to play Roger when he played uh, Grigor Dimitrov, so having said that and. Uh, on, the, on the most pressure points, how Federer's legacy would have been tarnished. It doesn't take anything away from Nadal because Nadal's beaten Roger on the grandest stages so many times. But if another Roger loss would have been just the blow that you know most Federer fans did not you know want to be dealt with. And uh, that being said, I think Federer just delivered on the highest of notes and the most pressure match. This was a movie that we've seen before, how it could end. <laughs> and he just came through. And he just hit that backhand and he was winning the 26-point rally. I think that punctuated, you know, the heart, the fist pump. And uh, Team Federer knew. And even Rafa knew. When Rafa got broken the second time, I'm just telling you now, I was watching the match and I told, you know, uh, my sister who was watching this match with me, I said, look, there's a double fall coming at Love 30 and it happened. And even (laughs) the great Rafa Nadal, I think he probably didn't know that Roger Federer is back. And, you know, because this is how I think these guys think. Because Nadal seldom uh, serves double falls. He spins that serve to his backhand and he just missed it. Right. right. Maybe not, not his day. He knew that point. Right. And and so, I mean, it ended well for us. Well, let me ask you, and so, uh, the other question is about Serena Williams. Do you, do you feel like she has cemented her place as the greatest of all time? She doesn't have a rival like Federer Nadal or Nadal Djokovic. You know, she has battled different generations and she's in a league of her own. And she's she's been battling the history books. You know, uh, so kudos to her. Uh, she comes back and wins this and eclipses Steffi Graf and now Margaret Court is next. So uh, Serena has a clear path for this conversation because she's battling the books and her rivals are people from different generation. While on the men's side, this is like a three-way conversation and do not count Novak Djokovic out of this yet. No, completely not. I mean, Djokovic definitely will be back. Um, question is, will he be back in a GOAT kind of conversation? I mean, this guy, again, his credential, if he ends with like, say, 15 slams, He's won four in a row. So I think these conversations, uh, just like political conversations, you know, you can choose your own argument and kind of diffuse what the others are saying. But just right now, this is Roger Federer's time. I think he really delivered a knockout punch. I mean, he extended his legacy. He extended whatever people felt he was lacking. 
And I think, again, you brought a good point that Federer's not mentally tough. I always said that. Federer could have just easily retired. He never shied away from more of Djokovic, more of Nadal. I mean, he himself said, you know, of course, he would like to uh, correct some of the head-to-head deficits. But I think this guy is so mentally tough. Maybe not along the uh, likes of Nadal and Djokovic, but his mental toughness is kind of underrated. Definitely. Uh, So then let me kind of switch topics and, and ask you about other players. Um, so, what does this mean for the rest of the year for players like Rafa, players like Dimitrov? Uh, who else do you want to pick? But um, really, who are the big storylines outside Roger? I think Roger and Rafa are, you know, back in top 10, big storylines. But Dimitrov showed something that was clearly lacking up till this point. And he came out in the grandest of stage against a very tough opponent. A veteran, you know, who pretty much, again, can do the same damage to his backhand like he does to uh, Roger's backhand or Tommy Haas's backhand or Gasquet's backhand. So do, do you view the loss against Rafa as a positive uh, or a negative? I think it has to be a positive, even though he was very close of, of winning this. It it was a match that was, you know, played at a very high level. So Dimitrov, this was second semi. He felt at home, unlike the uh, first semi against Djokovic, uh, Wimbledon, which was, again, a good contest, but it had, like, these double falls and he showed some nerves. And I think this match, I think in the end, you can say Nadal won it. Even though Dimitrov probably had few shots he could have taken back. And it could have been a different outcome. But I think he takes a lot of positives. And uh, his work with uh, Danny Velvedu is paying off. And uh, he's close to top 10. He's, I think, ranked 13. So definitely, he, he's a guy. If he can you know, start unleashing this kind of play, he will be in the picture. Yeah, I would agree. And going back to Rafa himself... I feel like this is going to give him a boost uh, for the clay season. Um, and a lot of this depends on what state of mind is Novak Djokovic in. But Rafa has to be right up there as, as a favorite for the French Open, um, the way he's played on uh, on the fast hard courts here and uh, at the Australian. Yeah, I mean, if he brings this game, so he's definitely, till he's playing, he'll be in the mix for the French Open. But uh, again, it's still four or five months from now. And I think uh, Novak Djokovic uh, will have something to say. And so will Andy Murray. Because these guys are, I think, these are just freak losses they suffered. And uh, due to the court playing fast and, you know, Eastman zoning, we already talked about it. But I think uh, Federer and Nadal playing the final, I think Djokovic should be supremely motivated. No question. And when you think about Rafa's season going forward, uh, do you see him contending at, at all of the slams rest of the year? Uh, let's take a slam at a time. I still don't know how you know his draw is going to play out because uh, I think there are a few matches that you would want to see him win. This is a very good start with Moya on board. They came extremely close. They were like you know two service holes away from a slam. So yeah, I mean, but again, do, do we have a verdict on Moya? Look, uh, <laughs> I mean, they just start. They partnered in the off season, right? Because uh, in the IPTL time, I think Raonic dis- uh, declared that. Him but, and- but I told you so much of this is mental, and do you, do you feel like he turned a corner there? I mean, you you still don't want to discount the team he had, but I guess this is like pretty much someone joining. But you know, it's someone who they knew, so I'm sure uh, this is a good step. And uh, Moya has to be given a credit, but again, I I generally tend to give credit like. Uh, when someone has been there for a while. I think this is too early in well, my books. One of the things that strikes me about all of these conversations we're having, these are a bunch of guys who technically are over the hill. They've all hit 30. And this is where, I mean, anything could happen from from a physical standpoint. They, they could drop off very quickly. 
And we've seen that happen in the past. Um, I think one of the reasons why we're not talking about their decline as much as will they have a shot at winning something is because the next generation has simply not showed up yet. And yes, now Dimitrov has done uh, shown some glimpses of potential again. And he's back in some level of conversation about, oh, maybe he's going to make a breakthrough. I just don't, I still am not seeing that that big push from, from the next generation. And so um, that is why I think Rafa is relevant more than even Rafa himself playing at a very high level. Look, we have to be a little reasonable because uh, if you can go back to all the Australian Open podcasts we did, uh, we didn't see Roger beyond Nishikori, you didn't see Roger beyond Burdick, and then you didn't see Nadal beyond Zverev. But Burdick was 30 years too. No, but I'm just saying, like this is as great a result as it is for tennis and its ratings and the fans to be excited. There's still a little freak of a result. I mean, these guys, uh, you know, probably had a master stroke each. Federer listened to his doctors and his trainer. He could still play tennis, but they said, you know, why don't you just get fully healed and just practice like you've never before and then start playing points. And it paid off. Now it's easy to say. And same for Nadal. When he lost uh, his match in, I think, Shanghai or maybe indoor, he just called it quits on the season. And he said he was sick of uh, getting treated and then practice. So practice was never 100%. So that being said, uh, let's, let's, you know, let's hold back on how the season is going to evolve because everybody's so hungry. And I've seen, I mean, these are two great players, but I've seen a lot of time people have a great Australian Open and then fade for the rest of the year. It's not going to be the case for these guys, but uh, you just can't discount the other, like Vavrinka, Nishikori. And these, these guys might have their moment. And when I say moment, these guys might just stop someone and that may open a door for someone else. Let's not forget Del Potro, who's kind of waiting on the sidelines. And I'm sure he's he's happy about taking his break and maybe coming back stronger. Yeah, absolutely. He's in the, he has to be in the mix. So, I, I mean, I want to go back, uh, again, take a trip down memory lane, uh, as always. Um, I go back to the year 2005 this time, when a 35-year-old made the final of the U.S. Open, and we're talking about Andre Agassi, and he gave, I would say, a peak Roger Federer, everything he could handle. Now, Agassi is... Still three sets. Still three sets, yes. But if you consider his tournament, um, it was a fantastic tournament because he won three five-setters to get to that final um, and back-to-back, right? So he beat James Blake, yeah, he beat Xavier Melisse, and he beat Robbie Ginepri, Robbie Ginepri in the semifinals. Uh, three five-setters to get to Federer, and and he had a break. He was up a break in that third set, I remember, and it was looking it was looking very interesting at that point. And you, you have to remember, this was a Roger Federer who was invincible at the time. And I was thinking, man, how can a 35-year-old play yeah, at this level? He was about to be invincible. I think 2006 was the invincible Federer. So this is like a season away. You could say that, but who won Wimbledon that year? Yeah, but who also lost to Murat Safin and Rafael Nadal <laughs> in the semis? So, but, but you get my point, which is uh, Andre had a phenomenal U.S. Open at age 35. And um, I want to ask you, if you compare that U.S. Open and you compare Roger's Australian Open, there are so many parallels. Uh, Roger, too, had to play uh, multiple five-setters to get to the final. Um, and yes, he beat Rafa. Uh, so, But then he was not playing a 25-year-old Roger Federer in the final. Uh, so, but he had a tougher road. I mean, Burdick, Nishikori, Wawrinka... Nadal, I mean, this is this is as tough as it gets. Of course, there's no Novak, but given Roger's back after six months, I think this was a pretty hefty challenge, winning three five setters. 
do anything so against this company. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And I, I think it, it's really a tough one for me when I think about it because I still remember watching that match and thinking there's not going to be another 35-year-old that can play at this level because people used to talk about Jimmy Connors making the semifinals, but Agassi's level was incredibly high in that US Open. And if you recall, Sakib, we went and watched the same year uh, Agassi play the Rogers Cup final. Uh, where he lost to Rafa in a, in a very tight three-setter. Um, so um, I, I just wanted to bring him back because I was reminded of that year of Agassi. And it just gives me a lot of optimism because I actually think Roger is even more fitter than Agassi was at that time. And uh, I feel like it, it, it bodes really well for his year this year. Yeah, I mean, it's a very fair comparison, but I would definitely like to point out Agassi going into that open was one of the three best hardcore players. Uh, Federer, Roddick, and Agassi Roddick lost to, I think, uh, Johansson. Yes. No, Jills, Jills Mueller. Yeah, Jills Mueller in the first, first round. Down. Yeah. Yes. And uh, in this Australian Open, Roger wasn't one of the top five favorites. So I think the contrast, you can go on and on. Agassi was a contender and he had a hell of a run. But similarly, I think Roger's story to me is just more phenomenal, not because he won, because the circumstances surrounding him, uh, the, you know, the uncertainty of comeback, and, uh, you know, we've only seen a practice session and then a loss to Zverev in Hopman Cup. So, he was he match fit? Again, he answered a lot of questions in style, but uh, I think this is a greater achievement. I think it's clearly Federer's, the kind of uh, opponents he beat. But, yeah, I guess he definitely, that was a magical run. I don't want to take anything away from Andre uh, back in 2005. But uh, I think the quality of opponents Federer beat is just, you know, I, I would agree, and I, I think it's been, uh, I read somewhere nearly 30 years since somebody beat four top 10 players to win a Grand Slam. And to do that at age 35, uh, I think is, is just an unbelievable feat. Speaking of unbelievable feats, um, I don't know which one is more impressive, Sakib. I mean, Roger obviously won uh, this tournament at 35, going through four top 10 players. Look on the other side, Venus Williams. Uh, who had uh, has an immunovirus problem, uh, comes back at age 36 to play the final against her sister, Serena. Uh, that is an amazing feat in itself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, no comparisons, but yeah, Venus delivered, you know, one of her legendary, I think, runs. And her match against Coco was, I think, the standout match for the championship. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Coco was looking so dangerous. And I, I actually kept thinking that Venus is going to lose... Every next match, I thought she was going to lose, but she showed that fighting spirit that I think that which won her some of the most memorable matches at Wimbledon that I've seen in women's tennis. And um, it was just great to see her come back. And when we talk about fairy tale endings, I mean, you couldn't get better than Rafa Roger, Williams Williams. And there was almost a fairy tale ending, I should say, even on the double side with the Bryan brothers. Uh, almost matching um, Woodford and Woodbridge for the most number of slams, but they they fell just short. I mean, purely as a Federer fan, and you know, more Federer fans will echo this fairy tale. Almost became a nightmare, you know, like two service holes, and this was another loss. But yeah, uh, joke jokes apart, yeah, this is. I mean, for generally in, for tennis community, this was great uh, to have four legends, four champions, kind of defying time, which you know nobody beats time, but these uh, these four. And especially uh, Federer and Williams. Uh, Venus Williams did this over this weekend, which is pretty awesome. And for all of you Rafa fans listening to this podcast, 
hey, there's always another time, but it's not going to be against Roger. Probably going to be Joker and the French Open. Yeah, on that note, uh, let's uh, say goodbye and we'll shed, we should do another podcast soon. Uh, thanks for listening and check out the Peter Koda interview if you guys haven't. Yeah, absolutely. And also the website, tennisaccent.com. Thanks, guys.